Good morning, church. I hope you're well. I hope that things are going well for you. And I hope that even if things have been a struggle for you this week, that you are holding on to the hope that we have in Jesus because he is good. And last week, like we talked about, he is where we find our shalom, our deep, deep peace. Last week we talked about peace and this week uh, I had a question come through on WhatsApp um, to our home group actually. And, and the question said this, it said, uh, if everyone in the world was a Christian, would we really know peace across the whole world? And I thought about that for a moment and my response to it was this. I guess it depends how you define two things. Firstly, how do you define peace? And we defined that last week. Peace is more than the absence of war. It's shalom. True peace is deep. It's, it's when human beings are right with themselves, with the world around them, with the people around them and with God. And when we're right in that way, that kind of peace it overflows from within us and it changes the circumstances around us. Secondly, then, how do we define being a Christian? Because actually, actually having that peace, the only way to have that peace is to be a Christian and to know Jesus. So how do we define being a Christian was my second response to that question. And I want to talk a bit about that today. Um, and we're going to do that by looking at the end of the book of Judges. So before we start uh, jumping into all of that stuff, I just want us to read chapter 17 together. We're going to jump around and look at a few other bits in Judges and Ruth as well. But I want us just to read chapter 17 to ground ourselves in the story so far. So here we go. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I have heard you uttered a curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. Notice that's Lord in capital letters. That's Yahweh. That's God. OK, that's him by name. I consecrate this to Yahweh for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. 
chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Okay, um, we're reading through the book of Judges and we're going to jump into that story and unpack some of that stuff in just a moment. But in Judges, we're reading about the people called the Israelites. And, And so they are supposed to be the people of God. But what we discover as we read through Judges and and you get into chapter 18 and 19 and 20, they are the Israelites, but they are anything but the people of God. They are not living with God as their king. Romans 9 verse 6 says this, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Basically, not all who are descendants of of Israel, of Abraham, of Jacob, are actually Israelites. That's what he's saying. They're not really living as the people of God. And we see that again and again and again. In chapter 17, verse 6, it tells us Israel had no king. In chapter 18, verse 1. uh, In chapter 19, verse 1. And then right at the end of the story, in chapter 21, verse uh, 25, it said, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Judges starts out with problems about leadership. Okay, so so we get these stories of the judges, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, um, and they start pretty good. But as the story goes on, they get worse and worse. Gideon's this weak guy, ends up murdering some of his own Israelites and setting up an idol. And then we get to Samson, and that is just a horrifically tragic story. Um, And uh, it goes down and down and down. But then we get to the end of the Samson story and we jump into chapter 17. And what we discover is that this isn't just about the leaders. This um, tragic story of turning away from God has penetrated down through every level of Israel. It's not just in leadership. It's, It's become part of individuals, family tribes, religious people, mothers and sons. So this is what happens when the people of God mix or confuse their culture um, with the culture around them. So, so, so in this story, we start off with this story of this, this woman and she uh, has this money stolen from her, but it was stolen by her son. I mean, do not steal is, is one of the commands. Instantly, the son's not living in the way of God. But then he returns it and she says, I'm going to dedicate this money to the Lord, to Yahweh. So then she takes some of the money, not all of it, and and dedicates it to uh, God, the 200 shekels, when there was 1,100 shekels. So she didn't dedicate all of it, like she said, just some of it. And then she has household gods made with it. I mean, her understanding of Yahweh, of God, has been completely diluted by the culture and the customs of the community around her. We know that God says, don't have any idols, don't set up anything made by hands. Um, and, And yet that is what she does. Well, then we carry on reading. And uh, we read that that this Levite turns from Yahweh. A Levite is supposed to be serving God. He's supposed to be serving God. He gets to Micah's house and Micah's got all these household gods um, and this shrine set up. And the Levite comes in and he is swayed by money and possessions. I'll give you this much silver every year and all your food and clothes, Micah says to him. And the Levite's like, yeah. Great. Okay. So then he starts acting as a priest with these household gods. Um, 
And Micah, at the end of it, he assumes that Yahweh, the Lord, in capital letters, God himself, is going to be with him and be good to him because the Levite is there. It's just a screwed up story of how um, the people of God get led away from God when they allow the culture around them to influence them and the way that they live. And it just gets worse from here on in. You jump into chapter 18. And we read about the tribe of Dan um, and they still haven't stepped into the promise of God. They haven't taken the promised land properly um, and they become corrupt and they end up taking advantage of and attacking an innocent people, a weaker people, a people at peace. God had clearly laid out rules for how they were to engage in war with people around them and they failed to do that. They steal and they take uh, from Micah by force of threat. It's just a terrible, terrible story. And, and they take the Levite off as well, offering him more money. He's bribed again and away he goes. More fame, serve a whole tribe, not just a family. And he falls for it and he goes. And then we get into chapter 19 and chapter 19 gets even, even worse. And if you haven't read it um just health warning, really. Um, it is it's an 18 rated chapter. Um, it is a terrible chapter. It's a story of unfaithfulness. A woman uh, cheats on her husband, and yet she's a concubine and he's a Levite and kind of should he have even had a concubine. <laughs> and um, but then it gets worse um, to the point where uh, the Levite and the concubine, they're heading home when she goes back with him and they, they decide that they're not going to stay in a town that doesn't have Israelites living in it. So they go to a town that has Israelites living in it and they get to that town and no one offers them hospitality. No one. They're left outside until this one guy comes along and takes them into his house. And in the middle of the night, the men of that town, they come knocking at the door and they want to rape the guy that is living there, uh, the guy that uh, has been taken in uh, there. And, um, and the man living there won't let them do this to that man. But instead, he offers up his own daughter and the concubine and says, take them. And they get pushed out of the house and the concubine uh, gets brutally abused and raped. And it reminds us of the story of Sodom. It is almost identical to that story um, and it's done by Israelites. And we get to the end of that chapter. And we read this verse that says such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the days the Israelites came up out of Egypt. In other words, we have become Egypt. The people of God were no longer the people of God. They didn't look like the people of God. They had become Egypt, the very thing that they were going to be set free from to not be like and to show the world a different way. They were the people of God in name, but they were not the people of God in the way that they were living. And then we get into chapter 20 and it leads to civil war and it is just terrible. It is just terrible. And the whole book ends just by saying this thing, this whole story is a tragedy. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. So what do we take from this story? How do we learn from it? You go back to chapter 17 and, and you notice that the people there, they hadn't even realised that they weren't living as the people of God. They still thought they were doing things for the Lord. That's how it reads. I'm going to do this for the Lord. And even when I do this, surely the Lord is with me. And um, 
they were confused about who God was and what it meant to live as his people. They were trying to do it and trying to get it right, but they weren't getting it right. Here's the thing. You can try to be good. You can try to be patient. You can try to be loving and kind and nice and generous. You can try to be honourable. You can try to resist whatever temptations may come your way. And and you may do okay for some time. Uh, There may be a story that inspires you to be better, like the story of Deborah or Gideon. Maybe you've heard of Christians that have lived great lives and you're like, I want to be like that. As a young person, I remember going to youth events and hearing these amazing stories of people that were living for God. And you think, I want to be like that. And for a while, you, you do better. For a while, you do. But if there is no king, there's no rule. And if there's no rule, then the lines are blurred. And when the lines are blurred, we easily cross over to the other side. Uh, We've been watching uh, the Star Wars movies during lockdown, all of them. um, And um, to my surprise, Emily really enjoyed them, which was great. Uh, If you're not a Star Wars fan, sorry about this, just 20 seconds. Uh, But in the Star Wars movies, the the Jedi uh, masters again and again and again, they say this. The pull to the dark side is strong. And, And it is even for us in this world the pull away from god is strong the pull to act like the culture around us the pull to engage with things that god has said no don't do that is so strong and we can explain it away in so many ways and that's what's going on here in the book of judges we read it again and again and again everyone does what is right in their own eyes nobody thinks they're doing wrong They think they're doing right, but it's right in their own eyes. My definition of peace, my definition of fun, my definition of love, my definition of acceptable, my definition of good. Because it makes sense to me, because it feels right to me, because my group of friends or colleagues or peers all agree on it, it is right. But guys... If we want to be the church, if we want to be Christians, if we want to be true disciples of Jesus, we must, we must come back to the scriptures. We must come back to King Jesus. We must come back to his way. He alone is the way, the truth and the life. He alone is king. Your opinion, your feelings, your understanding, they will not lead you to deep, deep shalom peace. They might give you a fleeting peace for a moment or two, maybe for a month uh, or a year even. But they will not give you peace beyond all understanding. The Bible says this, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways in all the things you think in all the things you feel whatever they are acknowledge him and he will guide your paths he will guide your paths the people uh, in judges they are the israelites but they're not living as the people of God. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, Paul writes this, he says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
Those who have faith are true Israel. Those who wrestle with God, that's what Israel means, to wrestle with God, to have intimate relationship with him. Those who have faith in him, they are the true people of God. And faith looks like something. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember when we talked about uh, when you put your faith in a bridge, you stand your whole weight upon it. Faith in Jesus looks like something. It looks like choosing Jesus as king. It looks like choosing his way, even when it doesn't fit your way. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll be good to me. You'll be nice to me. You'll sing songs to me. You'll give your offerings of money to me. He didn't say that. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love him, then you will have him as king of your life. You will allow him to truly reign on the throne of your life. I just want to throw a little side note in here about faith and works, because I think people get confused about this. OK, I'm not talking about living by the rules for rules sake. It's not about that. It's about faith. Taking the rules out of the Bible and, and trying to live by them is not going to work out great for you. You will fail. And if it's all about living by the rules and you fail, then you'll lose hope and you'll lose hope in Jesus. Choosing to live differently because Jesus is your king. Now that is completely different. Of course, at times we're all still going to fail. But it's not on us to get it right. We choose to keep trying because he is our king and we want to honour him. When we do it that way and we still fail, he's big enough to shoulder our failure. His blood shed on the cross covers it because he is king. He takes responsibility for it and he leads us on. But when we're king, when we do it as works, because we're trying to prove something, because we're trying to live right, because we're trying to do the right thing to be OK, and then we fail, well, that crushes us because that's all about us. Being a Christian is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus as king. It's not about us. It's not about my life being good and I'm getting the things I want with Jesus as my buddy. He's my friend and he's there for me. Yeah, he absolutely is. But only truly when he is king of our lives, only truly when he's king. I think we need to grasp something that Paul writes in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not I who live. But Christ lives in me. I lay down my rights. I lay down my life. I lay down what I think is good and right. And I trust what he says is good and right. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I just want to wrap up by talking really briefly, just a couple of minutes about the book of Ruth, because Ruth is the very next book in the Bible. Um, and it's this tiny little book, just four chapters long. And if you've been doing the Bible readings this last week, then you would have finished Judges and read Ruth. And now you'll be into Samuel and it'd be really quick and easy just to jump over Ruth. But I don't want to do that because Ruth is juxtaposed next to Judges in an amazing way. It starts off in chapter one with the line in the days when the judges ruled, i.e. this story takes place in this tragic, tragic time. And yet in this time, we meet this character called Ruth. Now, Ruth, she's not an Israelite 
And yet she chooses to have the God of the Israelites as her king anyway. In Ruth chapter one, verse 16, she says this, God will be my God. And with that, she ups and she changes her whole life. She leaves her people and all that she knew. She abandons the gods that she had worshipped so far. The way of life that she had chosen to live, she just lays down and says, God will be my God. And then we carry on reading and we we meet this other character called Boaz, who in this time, while people are doing whatever they want, he still chooses the way of God and he follows the law of the Lord. In chapter two, uh, we read about Boaz allowing the poor and the foreigner. That's, That's what Ruth was. She had nothing. She was a foreigner coming to Israel and she was poor. Uh, lost her husband, had nothing. And he allows this poor foreign woman to pick up all the parts of the harvest from his fields that are dropped or missed by those harvesting in the fields. That is a direct command in the law of the Lord. From Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, God commands his people to allow that to happen. Then in chapter 3, he risks the intimacy that he's now shared with Ruth. We read the story and they get close to each other and he risks that and he risks not having her as his wife by choosing to follow the way laid out by the Lord and offering first to allow another man who had more rights as a kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth than he did. For Boaz, God is king. And even when it could have cost him wealth and possessions by allowing people to take bits of the harvest that he could have taken up. And then it could have cost him love and intimacy with this woman, Ruth, by allowing a man who had more rights legally at that time to marry her than he did to have the option of marrying her. He chooses God's way, even when it could have cost him. Church, why does this story matter? Because at the end of Ruth, we get this really boring genealogy, this list of names. And we see that Boaz and Ruth, they end up together and they had a son called Obed, who had a son called Jesse, who had a son called David, who became King David, the king who united the nation, who brought back the tabernacle, the presence of God in Israel, um, who brought peace to the land and started designing the temple for his son Solomon to build. When normal people choose God as king, it, it might only look like small happenings and it can feel difficult and countercultural. But choosing God as king allows God to truly be at work. And that results in hope in life and in shalom, in true peace. That's what being a Christian is about. That's what a true Christianity is. It is people who choose Jesus as king and they choose his way, even when it costs, even when the rest of the world says, no, do it this way, decide what's right for yourself. Choosing Jesus as king. That's what being a Christian is all about. Being with him, learning from him, becoming like him, submitting to his rule and reign and trusting that he is good. He is good and his love endures.